Do you want to do it on? Record it like that. And then we can edit it. Well, hey guys, welcome to me and Brock's podcast. Today we have uh, Mr. Hatch with us, and he's going to be talking about the Mexican-American War and the Civil War. Brock, do you want to get started on the Civil War? Sure. Okay. So, first question I have for you is, do you think the Civil War could have been avoided? <laughs> hey, you're turning that question back on me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I agree with what most of you guys in the class said, which was that, yes, I feel like it, it could have been avoided earlier. Um, however, because of the way that the um, system of slavery had been developed over time, over, I mean, at this point, a period of about 80 years or so, and the transformation of the way that people thought about race in the United States at this point, especially in the U.S. South, where slavery is um, part of daily life, um, by 1860, yeah, it seemed like it was pretty unavoidable. Um, that's the short answer. Okay. Um, my next question, um, if the, do you think that the North would have ever like given up? Do you think they would have kept fighting even after they were basically defeated? Or do you think they would have let the South do their own thing if they had lost? If the Confederacy had been victorious? Yeah. Are you asking? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. Um, actually, I just thought of something that I might go back to from that first question. Um, the one area I would say that where the war could have probably been avoided or at least minimized is had James Buchanan been a little more aggressive with um, his executive powers um, before the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln, like as South Carolina was drawing up um, secession and the other story, the other deep South states had started to talk about joining them, if they, they'd used troops right at the outset, I think there is a possibility that it could have been at least minimized or at least that those upper South states um, would not have joined um, the Confederacy, which would have made the the process of um, defeating the Confederacy a whole lot easier. Um, So, but the second question was, do you feel like the North would have continued fighting? This is a huge what if, um, because we don't really know, right, um, in either direction. But I would say that with those Western territories in play, especially knowing that the South had previously already been trying to expand slavery into New Mexico um, and perhaps even Utah territory and perhaps even farther down South into Mexico or the Caribbean, um, I imagine that there probably would have been further conflict between the two um, regarding that territory specifically. Do you think if he didn't capture, oh, that you didn't capture New Orleans that the war would have been lost? Um, no, I, I think it the I think it was a huge get for the uh, United States Navy at the beginning of the war, but I think eventually the Confederate States didn't really have an, a navy to speak of, um, and so eventually there it would have fallen. I, I don't think that that um, did did a whole lot, especially because as I said before, the exports that are leaving the South are primarily cotton, and the cotton uh, market at that particular point in time was kind of tanking due to other world forces like cotton in Egypt and India and other places. Um, <clears throat> so, so I would say no on, on that one. I don't think that's a, I think it's, it is a large victory for the United States and definitely helped in the war effort, but I, um, I don't think it would have like helped the Confederacy that long in the, in the long run. Do you think that if the Confederacy would have gotten assist from Europe and, um, like Canada and stuff, do you think that the 
Confederates would have been more successful or to less successful, or do you think Europe would have just stayed completely out of the way? I mean, sure. If, if they had somehow been able to get, especially Great Britain, on their side, yeah, the, that would have changed the outcome of the war, probably. Yeah. Um, the other, but the other side of that is, would Great Britain actually have gotten involved? I think no. Um, at the end of the day, again, their cotton supply—they're getting it in other places in the world. Yes, they they are kind of the the world's textile producers, and yes, they do need access to cotton. But at this point in time, they're getting it elsewhere. And you have to remember that um, the UK is the first of those large nations to um, abolish slavery within its empire entirely. Now, it had been in, abolished in its own, on the island, right? Mm-hmm. Or the islands of Great, Great Britain for a while, as, as it had been in France and other places in Europe, but in the empire, right? You're, uh, the UK is kind of in front of the US on this. Um, um, so attaching themselves to a cause of slavery right after they had gone through this whole abolition movement themselves seems very unlikely. Um, yeah. Who were the Confederates trading with at the time then, if it wasn't British? There, there's really not much trade going on for the Confederacy. So is that why they lost? They, they're, they yeah, they're mostly them. depending on, on the, internal um, resources, which at the end of the day, there's, there, there's just not a whole lot, especially when you're waging a war against the United States, which, and we talked about in class, all the advantages um, that the United States had in the North. Um, yeah, agriculturally, uh, manufacturing-wise, yeah. So do you think that since the Union, like, industrialized, that's what won in the war? Because they had, like, the goods to like, self-sustain themselves? I think industrialization definitely had a factor. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Population, too. But remember that um, the population of the northern states compared to the Confederacy was probably about... About three-quarters of the United States population was in northern territories, um, or states that weren't in the Confederacy. And um, in, the, in the Confederacy itself... Um, about a quarter to a third um, of that population was enslaved, right? Um, so it's a very small population um, between the two. But yeah, industrialization had a huge factor, especially railroads, right? The majority of railroads are, tra- are located in the north. Um, the majority of manufacturing, um, yeah. It's, it's, one of, it, it's one of those things that, like, as I said in class, the beginning of the war actually goes very terribly for the United States Army. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Confederacy on the battlefield definitely outperforms um, the United States Army, but it doesn't really matter in the long run because they just don't have enough resources where the United States Army just does. Yeah, they, they, they have everything they need to, to continue a war for a long period of time. And they have the transportation to keep sending out goods to people wherever they need it. And Yeah, and, and this, is, this seems like really bad to say, but um, they just have more bodies too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's kind of the tactic that... that Ulysses S. Grant eventually adopts, which is basically we're just going to use our advantages and just bludgeon the Confederacy over the head, even though we're probably going to sustain more losses than they did, the United States Army did. Um, but they just had more, <laughs> and so they just made use of it, yeah. Do you think that if Ulysses S. Grant would have been the uh, general that would have fought against Lee um, at the very start of the war, that mm-hmm. it would have been a shorter war? Or do you think that because... They had the two generals before who were less successful that kind of paved Lee's way. Um, a little bit of both. I, I don't really know. Because um, Ulysses S. Grant is dealing with different circumstances in the West than he is in the East. It's um, a good question. I'm not entirely sure about that. Now, I do think that um, the failures of a lot of the United States commanders at the beginning of the war did lead to... Um, 
a lot of those early successes by, by the Confederacy. There were there were a lot of mistakes made by McClellan, by Burnside, by all sorts of, of guys who were who really because it's not just two. There was um there, there was a, a series of like four or five or six different commanders who are all trying their hand um, at, at leading the the Army of the Potomac, and it just doesn't seem to be working out until really George Meade comes in. But but by then, Ulysses S. Grant is is kind of taking over for the entire operation. At the beginning of the war, there wasn't a, a one commander who was general of, of the multiple armies. That that doesn't come until um, the end of the war. So like Robert E. Lee is just like a genius because he outsmarted, he was outnumbered, but he still managed to like take in there and win the first couple battles. He played he played to his strengths, right? And the, the Union commanders um, were a little bit stuck in, in old tactics. Um, in addition to a lot of them were playing the long game, like I said, with, with McClellan. Um, who's kind of harboring political ambitions and um, and things like that. He's also a Democrat, so he has a lot of sympathies with, with people who are of that same political party in the South. Um, and so he kind of, I don't want to use the word kid gloves, but he, but at the beginning he kind of, you know, treats the, the Confederate Army with kid gloves a little bit. Um, but but by the time that Grant become, you know, Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan come along and, the, and they're kind of the ones in charge, then it's a completely different story and they adopt these total war practices that basically just um pulverize the south um do you think that the way that the south like had like they started really well and then they kind of fell off towards the end do you think that that kind of still fires up the south today and the Mm -hmm. like they still think that they're you know, yeah, good at war. Yeah, we're going to talk about this next week. Um, lost cause mythology. Okay, um, basically, it, it's the idea that that the war hadn't really ended, right? It's that um, people being loyal to not sorry, not that the war hadn't ended, but the, but that those loyalties remained intact, right? That they that they agreed. they sorry. Let me rephrase that. Um, that they saw that their cause had been worthy all along. Um, they. They admit that they lost, but that their cause was a good cause, right? Um, and yeah, has that been? I mean, look at what what you're seeing about Confederate monuments. Look at what you're seeing with with what we saw at the Capitol building with those Confederate flags. Um, that is, and that's going to influence Jim Crow policies in the South and um, restrictions on African Americans throughout through through decades, right? Um, and and many ways that influence. Um, other forms of oppression that are still around today. Yeah, lost cause mythology has definitely been an influence on um, a, a continued militant um, feeling. And, that, and it's not just in the South. Um, there are Confederate monuments in almost every northern state as well. Um, and you you find people um, wave. I mean, I've seen Confederate flags here in Utah. doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I've seen them in New Mexico. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I've seen them in Maine doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, it's like, well, that's, but, but yeah, uh, that, um, the lost cause mythology has definitely had a huge impact on post-Civil War America, for sure. How long do you think the tensions lasted between the North and the South? Or do you I, think think st- I think they're ongoing. They're still around? I mean, a lot of ways, when you say North and South, you have to also qualify, like, which members of the North and South are you talking about? Because a racial element you know, is playing here too. Cause you can't just like talk about the South entirely as like a monolith because there are a lot of African-Americans in the South who probably would not get down with this same um, sort of line of thinking, right? Um, what was the original question? I forgot. 
Uh, do you think that the tensions are still like? Oh yeah, tension. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, um, we was it you, were you were you talking with you guys the other day in class about Texas and tech and like secession bills and stuff like that. I don't think they so. play around with the idea like every every couple of years. Oh, yeah, some like, some Texas lawmaker always brings up the idea that Texas is going to secede from yeah. from the union, you know. Um, and yeah, that that's related to the same sort of thing. It also has something to do with the you know Texas Revolution too, but really it has more to do with the Civil War um, than it does with that. Even though they use, um, but documents from the eighteen thirties and the Texas Revolution to to defend it, it really has more to do culturally with the Civil War. How likely do you think it is that we have another civil war? Like, I think it's unlikely. Um, I think, I mean, you guys can see tension. Like, there, there's no doubt about that. But when you when we talk about um, at the beginning of class, I, I asked you guys to do a lot of info sheets. Remember that? I got so many responses when I asked, like, why do you like history? A lot of people said we study the past so that we don't repeat mistakes <laughs> and I would hope that um, enough Americans see the mistake of what happened in 1860 1865 right um, that and also just the way that the executive branch functions now compared to what it did then makes it very very unlikely um, for anything like this to succeed and also just differences in technology and military and stuff like that like the difference between a soldier in the United States Army and just a person who grabbed, picked up a gun as a, as a rebel in the South wasn't that much of a difference. But the difference between someone who just picks up their shotgun at home and what the United States Army has in its capabilities now, that's a big difference. Right? Mm -hmm. You can't just go home and get your own unmanned drone, right? And, <laughs> you, you know, so, so yeah, I think that makes it um, very, very unlikely. Will there be changes? Yes. I think, I think we are currently in a moment, um, kind of like a, an 1861 moment or like a 9-11 moment, not in like what's actually happened, but in that things are going to change. Um, and it's kind of like a nothing's going to be the same now sort of thing. I'm not entirely sure what those changes are going to be. Um, but, but yeah, I think there are some definite changes on the way. Civil War, though, probably not. Hopefully not. Um, if you were to go back into the election um, when Abraham was Abraham Lincoln was elected, and if he wasn't elected, do you think that the Civil War would have happened? Okay. Um, so if it had been one of the Democratic candidates, maybe mm -hmm. like a Stephen A. Douglas? Yeah. Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, the election of Lincoln probably was the single most thing that, that contributed to the secession of those southern states, of the deep south states at least. Um, I think that it could have been pushed down the road a little bit. I could have seen, but eventually something had to give as far as slavery was concerned. Um, whether that happened in 1860 or if it happened a little bit later, I think it would have eventually happened. Because if it wasn't Lincoln, then the Republicans would have, you know, nominated someone else the next year or Lincoln again or something. Um, and I, I think eventually something would have happened. But, but yes, I, I agree. In 1860, could it have been avoided? Probably. For a couple of years or, or more years. Maybe even a decade or so. Maybe. Um, if, they had, if they had had like a Democratic president in place. Maybe. It also depended on Congress, too. Um, because there was that influence of these new radical Republicans who were coming. Who were, 
you know, quite effective in, in passing their legislation. So. Do you think the North um, kind of like wanted to go to war, like to stop it? Or were there more like people saying, maybe let them do their thing and then they'll come back when they realize that they kind of need our other half? Um, I think enthusiasm for the war was pretty high right at the outset. And we talked about that in class a little bit too, mostly because people didn't really understand the consequences of what was about to happen. Um, there were definitely a lot of people who opposed the war for sure. Um, there were a lot of Northerners who, um, they call them copperheads who were, um, kind of Southern sympathizers, not necessarily that they like were pro Confederacy, but they were mostly just anti-war. Um, so yeah, there, there's a, a decent amount of opposition in the North as well. Um, never like the majority, of course. Um, but the, the majority either found the cause to be just in the North. And the majority in the South saw the cause to be just, even though it wasn't, but yeah. <laughs> um, what would you say is the most uh, like brutal act of the Civil War? Oh, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, well, I told you guys about Andersonville Prison. Um, I told you about Fort Pillow. Um, and then you could also say that, I mean, you know, like Sherman's March, you know, like some of these tactics that the United States Army used towards the end of the war, Cold Harbor is another example, were basically um, actually, um, what's the other one? Was it Clarksville? What's the, there's one in Tennessee. I'm blanking on the name. Um, where, where these troops were just thrown endlessly into these lines of fire. And it, it led to like thousands and thousands of death that were probably unnecessary. And it, a lot of it had to do with just poor decision-making by commanders. So it's, it, the question is like the ones that are illegal, the ones that are illegal, which one led to more death? It's hard to say which is like the most, or like the ones that, that are built around like hate crimes. Um, you know, like, like with the Fort Pillow massacre, um, Obviously, that's not as many people die at Fort Pillow than die at Gettysburg, but the method in which they were killed after the battle, you know, means something as well. So, were there atrocities? Yes. I don't know how to answer that question, which was the worst. Although Andersonville Prison does rank up there for sure. Um, do you think that um, someone like Robert E. Lee had the uh, Confederates won? Do you think that he would be like their next in power type person or do you think it's a good like, question i doubt it um first of all because he dies in 1870 so he only lived five years after the civil war um of a heart condition i believe actually i need to check on that i think it's a heart condition um anyway um so just that alone probably not um but he he was more of a, a military man. He's not a politician of sorts. I, I could see him wanting to. And plus, there were plenty of politicians in the South who were definitely looking to lead the Confederacy, right? Now, the interesting thing about the Confederacy, the Confederate Constitution, is that they only had a one-term limit um, for presidents. So they kept a lot of the same... So there, like... would, have, there would have been some turnover because uh -huh. their presidents couldn't um, do more than one term at a time. But... Would you say that they kept a lot of like the American like like government ways like? Oh yeah, if you look at the the Confederate Constitution, it's like ninety percent the United States Constitution, and the the largest changes having to do with protecting slavery. 
Um, but yeah, otherwise, the government looks very, very similar. Yeah, it has, it has a Congress, it has an executive branch, it has a legislative branch. Yeah, it's very similar. Do you think they could have come, become like self-sustained if they were left alone and like the UN didn't try to uh, <laughs> capture them back? Um, again, that, that's a big what if, I'm not sure. Um, I would hope not. Because <laughs> um, the British were training with them, so who were they getting their stuff? Well, they probably would have eventually, if, if the war, if you're saying, if the war had ended and they had been victorious, um, eventually somebody would have started training with, training with them, right? Somebody would have recognized their legitimacy, but a lot of people were just waiting to see the outcome of the war, right, uh, before recognizing any sort of government. So um, I think they, I suppose it, it's possible. Um, do you have any more questions? Because I, I know I think we should talk about Mexican America okay. more. Uh, my last question, the big one, what do you think, uh, how do you think this war defined, like, America? And today, I think it's, and it's the defining war in American history. I mean, World War II is as well, but that's for a completely different reasons. And it's a global war that has other nation participants, right? This is the only one that's, um, like, uniquely American. And it's, it's fought um, over ideas that are uniquely American, right? Over slavery, um, over f the idea of, like, what freedom means, about um, the role of government. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say that this is kind of the defining war for the United States. And also because, I, like I said before, right, that, that it's still kind of ongoing, or at least the ideas behind it are still ongoing, that conflict. Um, and it, it's morphed over time, right? And it, there are a lot of different changes that have happened since, but but it, it's still kind of the central tension in America right now, right? Um, issues of race as well, right? Um, so yeah, I would say that this is kind of the American war. Okay, so we can switch gears now and go to the Mexican-American War. So my first question is, that I know you uh, were at least raised up in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, the war was, like, important? I know it wasn't right, and it was completely BS, but do you think it was important for America to capture those territories? For New Mexicans? Are you talking, like, specifically people who were already in that area? Yeah, New Mexicans, Texans, just, like, the you, you get California... Yeah, New Mexico, yeah. Texas, I mean, all the I mean, big I mean, obviously, it's a huge, it's a huge chunk. It's basically most of the U.S. West. Um, has it had an impact? Yes. Was it, was it just? No. <laughs> um, it it was never just. Um, but I think it's okay to separate and and recognize that yes, it has had a huge impact on the development of the United States. But we can also say that the method in which um, it happened was still. Um, um, uh, unsavory to be nice <laughs> right um now specifically for people living in those regions already um in my experience a lot of nuevo mexicanos so when i say that i mean like spanish-speaking people from new mexico um who are but they're not really mexican because they never lived in mexico that's never been and remember that mexico would have been an independent republic for only 25 years before this war starts okay so it's, it's a very short period of time and for people who are living on these far like on the periphery up there they have like no interaction with this new government okay and like i said before most of them are doing like trading or sometimes illegal trading um with with americans or with or french or british people um and so some of them were um, resistant to, resistant, is that even a word? 
they resisted <laughs> um, American um, presence in that region, but most didn't really care one way or the other, and some welcomed it um, because of those increased like economic opportunities, especially. And also because they saw it as, well, we're going to get more protection from indigenous raids um, from the United States government than we will from the Mexican government. And so a lot of them welcomed the military because, like, hey, they're going to protect us from Navajo, Apache, Comanche, you raiding. So do you think if James K. Polk didn't start the war, do you think it would have broke out, like, when the California gold rush hit? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, that's hard to say because part of the, the reason gold is discovered in California is because of the presence of people who hadn't been there, other or who wouldn't have been there had it not been for the war. Um, I suppose gold probably would have been discovered eventually. So yeah, I, I suppose there would have been a rush eventually. My guess is that they would have tried to buy it. Um, California, I, I feel like they would have repeatedly tried to buy California. Now, that depends on how Mexico, um, you know, interpret it. Because again, the, the Mexican government is fluctuating at this time too. They, have, they go through all sorts of different leadership, <laughs> like over and over and over. Santa Ana, for example, we talked about him in class, remember the guy at the Alamo? Mm -hmm. um, he becomes president of Mexico 11 different times. <laughs> and most of the time he's ousted, right? So he comes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, ironically enough, ends up dying on Staten Island in New York um, and he, after he pretty much invents chewing gum, of all things. Um, yeah, seriously. Um, or at least the, the mass marketed kind that we're, we're used to, because there are early like forms of chewing gum. that's basically just like tree pitch. Um, now I'm off topic. What was the question? Um, if, uh, we didn't, if James had pulled it, start the war. Would oh, would still... there have been a war eventually? Yeah. I sub I mean, it's definitely a possibility, right? Um, if it hadn't been, I mean, Polk was certainly aggressive. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I don't think any of the other candidates who had run in 1846, yeah, 1846, no, four. Shoot, when does he, 1844, yeah, that's the election. Um, none of the other candidates of that particular election, they, none of them probably would have gone to war. I'm, I'm saying that, but could it have happened eventually? Probably, um, especially if gold is, is discovered. I think that that would have put pressure as well, right? It also depends on who would have discovered the gold. Maybe a British merchant would have, you know, and that would, have, you know, who knows? Um, or just local, um, you know, Mexican citizens, and that would have caused them to hold on to California even longer. I'm not entirely sure, um, but it's a good question. Uh, but but was James K. Polk aggressive? Yes, absolutely. Do you think if we didn't get California, it wouldn't be like as big of a powerhouse in the next world wars? I mean, California is what they say the world's eighth largest economy, just on its own. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so it's 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 basically one of a world power in and of itself. Um, Population-wise, technology-wise, economically, you know all these things. Um, so, so yes, does it does it add to to America's um, influence in the world? Absolutely, especially in the Pacific, right? Because all the interactions that um, on that coast now being open um, to to American trading and stuff like that in China and Japan, also the immigration going the other direction, coming to California, right? Um, so yeah, do you, why do you think that Polk like? Stopped. Why do you think he didn't go and try and take all of Mexico and expand even more? Um, as I said before, he didn't. His goal was California, right? He didn't really. He didn't, honestly didn't really even care about you know like New Mexico or Utah. That was just kind of like might as well because it's the space in between Texas and California. Um, 
so yeah, there there weren't there wasn't really anything that they desired. They were mostly looking for kind of the cutoff of that manifest destiny, you know, the side of going all the way to the Pacific Ocean. The ports of San Diego and San Francisco were were definitely up there as like prime targets, right? Um, and also there's the racial element. And I talked about this a little bit too, because there were a lot of people who were definitely pro-expansion and pro-expansion of slavery, like John C. Calhoun, who did not want to take the entirety of Mexico because um, of its Mexican population. Yeah, they're half indigenous, Spanish, um, majority, I mean, almost entirely Catholic. Um, whereas those territories of New Mexico, Utah, California, are very, when you, when you take out the indigenous populations, are not very populated, it's very sparse, right? And so there wasn't really any, there was not a ton of influx of um, Mexican citizens who were becoming American citizens in those regions. But had you gone farther south, that would have been, been a completely different story. And most American politicians were not ready to incorporate um, Spanish-speaking um, brown okay, um, citizens into the United States. How much effect do you think this war had on Native Americans? Um, a, a ton. And I mean, as I said before, indigenous peoples were already kind of running the show in this region, right? We talked about that in class, about raiding and how that um, most of these peoples um, are, are dominating Spanish, Mexican, and American troops, right? Um, in succession, and, and other indigenous peoples as well, right? Um, but the long consequence of this war is that the United States does have a presence now in the far west. Now, it takes until after the Civil War, or sorry, I should say during the Civil War, um, for the United States Army to really start um, being a aggressive in, I don't want to use the word conquer because that gives us some sort of legitimacy, but um, to prosecute war against these peoples. Um, and that has everything to do with the Civil War itself because the war itself is about federal preeminence, right? It's about, you can't secede from this union, right? Mm -hmm. That's not your choice. Um, and we will decide um, who, is, who is the most powerful here, right? It's, it's a war about sovereignty and slavery, but, but also sovereignty. Um, and so that leads to the United States sending troops during the middle. I mean, they've got they they've all the stuff that's happening, um, in the U S civil war, but they're also prosecuting wars against, um, Apaches, Navajos, um, Shoshone, um, Comanche all over in the, in the U S West, um, during the war. We'll talk about that more next week too. Um, so, so absolutely had a huge impact on indigenous life, um, in, in this part of the West. Absolutely. For sure. Where do you think America would be now without the Mexican uh, American War? Like, um, that's a good question. I don't know. I, you can make. It's it's hard with with those what ifs, right? Because <laughs> there's so much that's happened in between. Um, yeah, I don't know how to answer that question really. Yeah, would have changed so much. It would be it would be different for sure. And and let's say we we went with the assumption that it that that territory stayed in Mexican hands, it'd probably be a little bit different, right? For both countries. Um, do you think that the Mexican-American War was like, almost like started a little bit of a chain reaction to lead to like a civil war and then? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, because the, I mean, the central question about the civil war was will slavery expand to the West, right? That, I mean, sorry, that's not the central question. The central question is slavery itself, 
Um, but the thing that brings it to the, the national conversation that's, that people are fighting about is what happens in those territories in the West? Is that, are they going to be slave? Are they going to be free? Or is it going to be popular sovereignty, right? Um, so absolutely, the one bleeds into the other. There's no doubt about that. Is Mexico still, like, upset about the Mexican-American War? Um, a lot of, I mean, yeah, they're, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on what Mexico is, I mean, is the state officially, um, or its peoples, but yes, there is definitely a, a tradition in Mexico of, of Mexicans referring to it. I, I can't remember exactly the word that they use, but it's not the U.S.-Mexican War. They call it something more along the lines of the War of American Aggression or something like that. I'm not entirely sure what the term of it is. Um, but is there bitterness? Sure, right? Um, there's even been like certain movements like the, what they call the Atlan movement, um, that's trying to restore that region to Mexico um, in, in kind of like a, you know, extra legal way <laughs> but but yeah what else have they done to like try to get it back back of the uh, united states like what else have they done to i mean nothing there, there's very little that can be done right um especially at this point are you talking about like right now yeah and there's very little that can be done right now um because i mean again we're 160 no 70 ish years i need to do more math 80 180 years or something like that um removed um so yeah there's very little that can be done about that now so do you see the mexican american war as a bad thing like to not just towards like the people that i have to but like towards like the u.s and the growth that it uh gained us i i, I think i agree with ulysses s grant who said that there was never an example in american history or i think he even said world history um of a stronger nation taking advantage of a weaker nation. I think it's definitely in that um, category. Um, yeah. Would you say that the North or the South had more, like, want to have the Mexican-American War happen? Typically Democrats. Um, now, remember, prior to... Because the kind of the sectional divide between North and South is, is somewhat of a, of a break that happens after the war, right? Before the war, it's mostly Democrats who are pro-expansion because most Democrats are pro-slavery. Um, whereas most are, well, actually Whigs, sorry. <laughs> um, most Whigs um, oppose the Mexican War, but not all, some, some support it, okay. Um, are, are mostly opposed, and a lot of it has to do with the issue of slavery, right? Now, after the war, um, and we talk about this in class, right? we start seeing decisions that are being made in the U.S. West about slavery. Um, the votes start splitting on sectional lines. So you see like Republicans and Democrats in the North vote, sorry, I said Republicans tonight, Whigs and Democrats in the North voting in one way and Whigs and Democrats in the South voting the other way. And so it's more between North and South than it is between political party. And that has a lot to do with these decisions that are being made. Um, in the U.S. West, like things like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Wilmot Proviso, right, stuff like that. Do you think that um, both these wars kind of shaped political parties and stuff like for today, or do you think that they have a, not as much effect today? I mean, the, the biggest uh, illustration of that is the Republican Party, right? <laughs> because the Republican Party emerges in the aftermath of the U.S.-Mexican War um, and in response to basically the failure of the Whig Party to have to oppose slavery, right? 
it, it, it's the one that fills the vacuum and gets um, people from the, the Free Soil Party, the Know Nothing Party, um, and old Whigs, and they kind of form this new coalition, right? And that, that all has everything to do um, with the U.S.-Mexican War and the issue of slavery, and then eventually the Civil War. Um, so yes, it, it's what gives us the, the two-party system that we're familiar with today. The two-party system had already been around, but the, those specific parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, right, are the ones that we still see today. Now, those parties have changed a lot over time, right? And so, and, and in many ways, they don't even resemble what they were, what they represented in this time period. Um, but they are technically the same parties. And so, yeah, absolutely. It, it had an outcome on that. Um, I know we talked about this yesterday um, in class, but do you think that like the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have like branches off of each other, like hmm. to the point where some don't agree with exactly what another Republican would think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, these these parties are so broad, right? Um, there's so many different political um, ideas that can be incorporated within these parties, like we talked about yesterday. There's kind of like the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, but then there's also kind of like the Mitt Romney wing of the Republican Party. Um, there's the like far left progressive, eh. there's far left, there's progressive, and then there's um, kind of the, you know, moderate, like Joe Biden type Democrats as well. Um, and so, yeah, that, do I, so are you asking if they're going to splinter? Yeah. Do you think that they'll splinter? Do you think that like they were kind of splintered back then too with how the Democrats and why have they in North and South? If, if there is going to be a splintering, I see it being more likely on the Republican side right now at this, at this specific moment, having a lot to do with Trumpism. Um, and, and kind of like the MAGA side of, of the party. Um, it, I mean, it, it could. I mean, there, there's, for example, Bernie Sanders, right? Bernie Sanders has run for the Democratic nomination a couple of year, or a couple cycles in a row for president, but he represents the Senate as an independent. Did you know that? So he's actually not a Democratic senator. He's an independent senator, okay? He, but he, he also knew that if he's ever going to make any change as far as the president is concerned, he'd have to be in a party, right? There's no way that he could run for president independently and that he's going to win the nomination, right? Um, um, not Rand Paul, what's the... Uh, Ron Paul, Rand Paul's dad, who ran for president a couple of years ago, was the same. He was a libertarian, but when he ran for president, he ran as a Republican, right? Um, so there, there's some flexibility there. Um, so there, and I guess what I'm saying is like these political parties are broad enough to incorporate many of these different um, political ideas, but, um, I, will there be some splintering? I think that there might be, especially with the, with that far right MAGA kind of QAnon sort of crowd. Is it just because of collective votes that they haven't split already? Like they need all the votes they can get? Yeah. I mean, the electoral college is, that's, that's kind of the irony of this election actually, or at least of Republicans who are trying to like stop the count thing, because the only way that the Republican party has been able to be relevant in the last 20 years is because of the electoral college, right? If it was, if it was straight up popular vote, it would be dominated by the Democrats. So the, the, the central irony here is that the system that has been working for the Republicans is the very system that they're trying to kind of disrupt right now, which probably is not a smart move in the long run for their party mm -hmm. um, because the Electoral College is so important for their chances um, for the presidency. What was the original question? I forgot. Uh, I asked, like, why do they split? And then, like, why haven't they split? 
also another question. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because that's their only real chance to have it, to make any sort of change. So, yeah, they're going to have to make concessions within their own party, for sure. So if they did split, do you think that the Democrats would take like, a hold of, just like have a run of the next couple elections? Um, if, if, they, if there were to be a, a split in the Republican Party, I mean, it seems likely. But, but I don't know. I don't know. There, there's a chance that, that that doesn't happen, right? There's a chance that that the parties kind of stay the way they are, too. I mean, they, they've made it this far, too. <laughs> you know, that's the other thing. There have been other crises as well um, that they have weathered. Um, to go back to the Civil War for a minute, sorry. Um, I was just talking. Do you think, like, why do you think that it took so long to have, like, everyone be equal? You know, like, why do you think it took so many, like, black people marching almost, like, hundred years later saying that like we deserve our freedom why do you think it took so long after that you know wouldn't it have been like a chain reaction of the civil war ended slavery's ended like they're equal to us now we're going to talk about this um next week and the week after well actually for a while after that reconstruction is the answer right um the inability of the united states to implement the changes that were necessary to ensure those rights after the civil war even though those attempts were attempted, and they were, right? Certain laws were actually passed to ensure um, equality, black or white, right, regardless of race. Um, but they didn't succeed in reality, largely because of the, long story short, concessions were made by politicians in the North and South that basically said, we want to get back together um, let, and at the expense of the rights of African Americans. Um, we're going to talk a lot about that more in class, but it has everything to do with like Jim Crow laws um, or black codes first, Jim Crow laws, um, redeeming the South or the redeeming uh, movement, which is basically Democrats who are trying to strong arm their way back into politics to suppress black votes as much as they can. Um, and they're successful in doing it largely because the federal government eventually at the beginning of Reconstruction, they don't at the beginning of Reconstruction, the federal government is very much involved um, with enforcing these laws, right? And saying like, no, no, you actually have to let black people vote, right? Um, you actually have to have fair elections. No, you actually have to not murder people that are free, you know, like, um, but eventually over time, they, the federal government backs out of that commitment. And that leads to um, local governments being able to suppress black voting and, and suppress um, rights in general throughout the U.S. South and also the, the North, too. They're complicit just as much. Um, it's not as obvious, um, but there's definitely um, instances of, of quote-unquote Jim Crow laws in, in the North, too. Do you think it's still, like, relevant today? Do you think that, like, people still try and suppress black people oh, so yes. they can't vote and do stuff like that? Yes, and that's why... Um, That's why with this with this present election that, that people have been kind of like, well, there's so many extra voters, right? Way more people voted than ever before. A lot of that had to do with organizing that's gone for that's gone on for the last four years, especially on the Democratic side, of trying to get as many of these people um like like work on on getting an actual representation of the population of the South. And so like, I guess what I'm saying is like people were surprised when Georgia went blue because Georgia's been red for so long, right? Um, and it's not necessarily that Georgia was red, it's that Georgia had a long history of suppressing black votes, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
and the organization is specially done by like Stacey Abrams and a lot of other people in the in Georgia um, showed that they were able to it, it's not necessarily an issue of like the desires as much as the actual ability to get to the polls right um, and when when they worked through that process what we saw was Georgia went blue for the president and now two two Democratic senators were just elected from there as well um, you could say the same thing would happen in Arizona right a lot of people weren't expecting that um, North Carolina was close too so yeah there's I guess the original question was are there um, instances of, of voter suppression yes and we'll talk a lot more about those I think mass incarceration has a lot to do with it um, making like like incredibly harsh drug laws um, that, that have to do with um, that are kind of racialized by like certain types of drugs right um, and so we'll, we'll talk about that in class as well. But yeah, yeah, there have definitely been efforts to suppress that. I know we've kind of gone on to topics beyond the Civil War, but, but I'm glad that you can see that, that these ideas, they all connect, right? They're all related. And it's, it's good to contextualize um, these things that you're seeing that in the present with these events that, that have really been going, ongoing in American history for a long, long time. Um. Do you have any more questions? Um, yeah, I like to wrap it up. Do you think that war is important to American civilization growth? I mean, it, it definitely forms a, a element of it, um, for sure. Whether or not that's um, a good thing or a bad thing, I think that's a different question. But um, I think it's definitely part of, of American identity, right? And especially since World War II. Um, there's, there's a fundamental shift, and whoever you interview with World War II might, might talk to you about that. Um, in the way that the military is perceived, um, kind of the honor of military service and stuff like that, um, that there's a definite post-World War II, and, and it's largely through the Cold War as well, right, um, shift in, in the idea of what it means to be a service member. It wasn't really the case for the first 150 years of, of the United States. Um, so, so I think that has something to do with it. But yeah, uh, I think war, I mean, when you look at where the United, if you look at the map of the United States, you can like even point out like this region, this war, this region, this war, you know, like um, even in its territories, you know, like Guam or, or Puerto Rico, it's like you, you can point to specific wars that took place that had to do with um, how that even became American territory in the first place. Even like becoming American was a war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, going all the way back to the revolution, right? So. And then since World War II um, and, and during the Cold War, America has, has kind of like taken that even farther beyond its borders, right? So, well, even before that, but, but yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Yeah, no problem. This was fun. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I guess that's it, and we are signing off for now. <laughs>